Welcome to The Innovative Executive, the show that helps you make innovation a priority in your business. Innovation strategy consultant Bella Rushi helps you rethink your business model, embrace collaboration, and leverage technology. If you want to drive innovation and bring new growth to your business, then stay tuned as she meets industry experts who share practical experience to help you unlock your innovation potential. And now, here's Bella Rushi. Today on my show, I have Dr. Ginger Grant. Ginger is the Dean of Research and Innovation at Humber College in Canada. Ginger, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's an honor to have you on the show. I wanted to start the interview by saying congratulations on Humber taking the second spot on Canada's list of top 50 research colleges. Tell us about your role and this accomplishment. So Humber is one of the largest colleges in Canada. So there's about 35,000 students, a couple of thousand faculty, same amount of employees, probably a bit more. I came to Humber in 2018, and we were 30th in Canada at that point. My boss at that point said, I want you to develop and design a research culture. And I was like, okay, you know, sort of a broad description. How do you go about designing a culture? Which so that allowed me to do some digging and reading and other areas about that's an interesting question, how you would set one up, but sort of followed, took a look at other places that had done a lot of research. Colleges in Canada are mainly teaching colleges, and the universities in Canada traditionally do research. The role of education at the moment is shifting. So Colleges are starting to do more research and the universities are setting up uh, teaching positions only where someone doesn't have to do research. So we're beginning to cannibalize from each other. It's kind of a very competitive environment, but it's a very interesting one. So took a look at what everybody was was doing and then who do you need to hire? What should you pay them? You know, doing all that type of research and setting it up and then wandering around the college to find out who was even interested in doing research. Sometimes research gets a bad name. So when people think of research, they usually think of, oh, it must be really boring. And, you know, people are hiding in closets, reading books or whatever. I view research as because it's a college, it's applied. So when we say applied research, it's got to work. Whatever we do, whatever we suggest to an organization, it's got to work. It can't be, you know, theoretically, this might happen. It's like, no, we've researched the area out thoroughly. And if we do this project, it will work. So that makes it a very practical approach to doing something. I define it as kind of curiosity. And everyone is a born researcher. They just don't think about it. So the minute you go to Google to check on a new uh, recipe, you only have four ingredients in the house. What can I do with it? That's research. You're hitting Google, you're digging around, and it's fun. That's how I we start from the fun part, and then we can get into you know some of the more serious pedagogical approaches, but it's got to be worthwhile doing, and it's got to work. So that's how the role started, and slowly but surely, so started in 2018. For the first year, nothing really happened. I just wandered around and talked to people. So from 2019 to current, that's when we went from 30th to 2nd. So found the people who wanted to be curious and have some fun, digging through, solving problems, and then building it from there. So most of the time now, I just get out of the way. You mentioned with the changes in the environment of the universities and colleges, I recently read an article on the World Economic Forum site that fostering a culture of entrepreneurship 
is one of the most powerful ways that universities and colleges can act as an economic accelerators. So what does Humber College do differently to play a role in society to support and help overcome economic challenges? What we started to do is reaching out to the community. And again, the idea of even if you pull people together, throw some lunch at them. I like doing lunches and you know afternoon teas and that kind of thing. Puts people, when you bring food in, it relaxes them a little bit. This is, of course, pre-pandemic. But to bring in and say, okay, so what's keeping you up at night? What are some of the concerns or problems that you're experiencing? And maybe we can help and maybe we can't, but at least we can listen at this point. So to have that conversation and allow somebody to just say, okay, this is the problem areas that we're experiencing. And they're, they're multiple. The pandemic hit, they kind of narrowed the pipeline because everybody was like, okay, how do I do this online? Can people work from home? Can you be productive and work from home? What would that look like? So the question shifted as a result of the pandemic. And to me, the interesting part now is what did we learn from the pandemic? And what do you sort of go, okay, we aren't doing that anymore. And what do you keep? So for example, pre-pandemic, most organizations I found didn't like the idea of people working from home. Barely would they allow flex time. You know, like, do you have to work nine to five, Monday to Friday? And do you have to take an hour from lunch at noon to one in Canada? And I'm sure it's the same in the States. All those people going to work at nine o'clock cause traffic jams. The roads are packed with people trying to get to the office at a specific time. And my question was always why, right? If you're a morning person, why can't you come to work at six? And if you're an afternoon person, why don't you come to work at two? And you and the morning person can share the same parking spot. That was considered innovative to even think that way pre-pandemic. And to me, it was just like my grandmother would call it common sense. You know, you don't need a PhD to have common sense. It's like, well, why don't you have your workers work best when they work best? If you can do that, because obviously if you've got an assembly line or something, but you can have shift work. So now it's like, okay. Everybody could work from home and had to because Canada went on full lockdown. So for almost two years, there was no traffic. If you did want to drive around, the roads were pretty empty. So my concern now is I have some of my my people who couldn't afford to buy a house near where we are in, in the greater Toronto area. So they went, you know, two, three hours away from where the camp was and bought homes there. Well, they don't want to drive six hours a day to come in and back and forth to work. So can we set up jobs where they can work from home? And the answer is yes, we already know we can do that. Now to manage it, it's more complicated, but that to me is part of, as you say, that entrepreneurial spirit is like what works best for people and then put that in service of what you're trying to do in the organization instead of trying to dictate from the organization to the people, turn it around and say, Bella, how do you best like to work? Do you need a wide screen at home? They're very inexpensive. I can have one shipped to your house by Amazon. It'll arrive tomorrow. You know what I mean? It's like, so what will allow people to contribute the most that they can to that environment? In some cases, they have to be here. I'm back at the office because I like getting out of the house to a certain extent. If you've got your kids at home, your parents at home, your dog at home, and maybe there's only one computer, So that shifted in the pandemic as well. Wow. People who are parents and are educating their kids because they weren't in school, they were also locked down, right? So everybody's at home. Maybe you can't do your job until the evening. 
but if you're getting your job done, so that's how we work now is by output. Like when is it due rather than is it nine to five? We've totally thrown out the concept of time. I don't care when you do it as long as I have it by Friday. So it's that kind of shift. I don't know whether other colleges have adopted it as much as we have. To me, it's part of talent management. If you want to attract people, the best workers to whatever your environment is, you better have some flexibility built in. And what's happening in Canada is that sometimes is the first question. I don't care what you're going to pay me. Can I work from home? Or can I work flex time? Or can I work hybrid? And if the answer is no, I'm not interested in your job. I'm going to go someplace that allows me to do that. It's an interesting predicament I think employers are, are finding, but it's the opposite. Before, I think employers were pretty much driving the economy. Now it's the employees. Assets have feet. If you don't treat your people well, they're going to go someplace else. That's a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. It looks like that that was probably the start of the transformation with your college, right? I understand, you know, we were in Sweden together and you had given us a really interesting case study and you told us that you did an innovation assessment. Tell us about going through the process of doing an assessment and what an innovation assessment is with respect to the transformation that your college is having. I think in this case, you know, I'm speaking as an employer, right? So people forget that colleges and universities are also places where people work, like we employ people. So one of the things that we started to ask questions about is like, well, what is innovation in education? Like what what does that mean? What does it mean to for our workforce, meaning the people who live here, you know, all the time as employees? What does it mean for faculty that we're employing to teach? What does it mean for the students who are coming here? Right? So 35,000 students, what does innovation look like? And again, the pandemic, you can use some of those lessons. But one of the things that we asked about and, and started to think about is, and I use the analogy now is that if, if I find that my pants are a little tight, maybe I might get on a set of scales to find out why my pants are tight. And I might not like the number. And from that number, I may decide to go on a diet. So that's why we wanted to run a, a measurement. I wanted a baseline of where, where are we at? Like everybody says they're innovative. Are we? Do our people think we're innovative. So I know the leadership says that we're innovative, but to the people on the day-to-day boots on the ground, what do they think? And the, the beauty of, uh, we use something called Innovation 360, which I, I found in, in Sweden. I was very, very impressed with it because it does exactly that. It gives me a baseline. It gives me a measurement. And the, the other thing that I really liked about it was it's not my opinion. It's my people's opinion. So you do your executive, you do your employees, and then you can also throw in some external stakeholders. So you're really asking your people to be honest about what they think about various aspects of the organization. So I never trust just a measurement. I always want to ask questions about, well, why did you answer it that way? It's anonymous, it's aggregated, so you just get a a plot, right? But if there's a big gap, you can go and say, well, what's going on in openness, or what's going on in our supply chain? Because again, um, just like any other business, colleges, universities have a supply chain. Stuff has to come in, it has to go out. So what's happening? From there, I've got a baseline. So it's like getting on the scales and knowing here's my number. And then from there, you can go, well, what do I want to do about it? And more importantly to me is where do I want to start? 
So do I want to start in a certain area? Well, if there's a big gap, I might want to ask some questions about that. And I can go and take a look at that area. So that business expression about low-hanging fruit, to me, if you have a good baseline measurement, it's, it's not even low-hanging fruit. It's the apples on the ground. You know, you can just go and pick them up. And then you can worry about the other areas later. But if you wanted to start an innovation practice in an organization that's a large one, where in heck do you start? And that can be overwhelming. Well, if you use a measurement, some kind of assessment, then it will give you some data around where you could start. And from the data, I can then go and ask questions. Right? So there's your qualitative piece that you're bringing into the data that you can't just rely on the data. It's got to be both, right? The people part of it and the data part of it. So we call it data storytelling. It's like, what's the story behind that number that's, that exists there? And then finding out the reasons why. And then from there, you can decide, okay, what do I do next? Do I run a leadership program or a strategy session? Do a supply chain analysis? Like you have no idea otherwise where to start. You're just sort of throwing pieces of ideas against a wall and hoping something will stick. Appreciate you sharing that. And I wanted to kind of dig into it a little bit more in terms of, so it helps you with the decision-making process, right? It lets you measure where you are today. In terms of some of the myths that you may have had for an assessment, when you hear the word assessment or an innovation management assessment, what are the thoughts that you, you know, originally had before actually doing this? And what, what can you see differently that it's helped you kind of really plan out a, a, a vision for the college today that's much different than when you first started? Oh, I think as well, just like a traditional business before, what we would do is we have an executive management team. They have strategy sessions. Then those strategies are brought down to the frontline deans, if you will, in the colleges. After that, I bring it down into all my faculty and the students and my associate deans and faculty members. So it's something that cascades from the top. And what we found when you do an assessment and then you start asking questions, some of those really interesting comments could be coming from the bottom. Some of those interesting insights about your organization and your performance might come from an external stakeholder. So then you can take that back to your executive team. But it's the myth, I guess, that most people believe is like innovation is done by your chief of innovation, whatever, or your chief innovation officer, or you have an innovation department and they do it all. And it's like we find innovation all over the college. We picked up on changes, you know, from that we got from the cleaning staff that we got from our security people, we picked up on, uh, you're getting all of these different opinions. And again, yes, it takes time because you're wandering around talking to people, but you're getting ideas from everywhere because anybody can innovate. It's a question of whether you believe your employees can actually do it. My suggestion would be you probably have never asked them. You've hired a consultant or something and they come in and they tell the executive team, do this based upon their experience where what we were doing, is it my experience? Yes, but it's also grounded in the data. So I use my experience on the data. So I'm starting from a data point. I'm not starting from my opinion. And that to me makes all the difference because it's those data points can come from anywhere instead of the chief innovation officer or the innovation team. 
Yeah, so I saw that I was reading on your website and one of the institutional vision that's written out is to transform post-secondary education through global and polytech leadership. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and, and what you're doing in this space? My favorite topic. So think in terms of a university on one end of the spectrum and a traditional college on the other end of the spectrum. Polytechnics are in the middle. So you're using technology and innovation at the same time. So we solve problems. That is the job of any polytechnic institution. We have global partners all over the world that we work with. So it allows you to, and which I have, connect with all of the other partners that we have. We have them in two that I work with that I really enjoy are are Otago in New Zealand and the VIA system in Denmark. And we get together and we compare notes and what are you experiencing in your location? What are you experiencing here? How are you handling it? It's a way of sharing knowledge. So you're disseminating the information that you're having, like go out and talk to people and then share that information. Based upon that, it also gives us a a force, if you will, through the educational mandate to then change what we teach based upon the information that we find. So if industry says, which certainly around us in Canada, data became a very strong concern, analytics. Okay, then what software do we need to get get it in here? What problems are you solving or taking a look at from your institution or your organization, for-profit or NGO? Okay, let's throw the students at it and let's kick it around and see if we can come up with something better. So it's a very practical, faster because academe does not move quickly, but it's a bit faster than your traditional approach towards solving industry and community problems very quickly. So we really work with our community around us. So it's not just the organization from within, it's also how do we serve that community around us so that you can, everybody gets into driving that economic recovery, if you will, but it has to also come from a socioeconomic perspective. It has to work for people. So people and the technology working together. There is a challenge if universities are thinking they're only in the business of offering degrees and they're definitely in big trouble then. And just as you stated, hiring will increasingly be based on skill set, especially any skill set around technology. What kind of new opportunities were you able to create for your staff and students during your transformation? We followed the, I think it was actually 3M who came up with this idea of the 20% rule, yep. where one day a week, you know, 20% of your time. So 20% of the my team and research works on professional development. So it's usually Monday afternoon and Wednesday afternoon. So they get a full eight hours a week of whatever we've dreamed up that they want to take, uh, whatever they want to research, growing their personal. So every single one of my people have a personal sort of growth plan over the next five years. What do you want to learn? Where do you want to be? And if that means I want to do this in the next three years and then leave Humber, I'm going to be okay with that because I'm hoping if you do leave Humber, which I don't want you to do, but if you do, then potentially you become a client outside of Humber. And we can continue that relationship. So again, understanding that people now come first. This is not an option. Assets have feet. If you don't pay attention to your people, they will go someplace else. So talent management is huge. 
we practice what we preach. So within the research department, we do this. And then I encourage it. I'm trying to get other divisional people to sort of take a look at that as well. The interesting thing to me was, oh my God, if, if we do that, we're losing a full day. Like, how can we get our work done? And it's like, it's amazing how much more work gets done because we do spend that time in professional development. So it could be learning a new software program. It could be just anything. So whatever the team comes up with, we will take a look at. And then if they want to focus on, okay, let's do leadership. That's a combination of uh, face-to-face and distance. So how do we engage people online? Mm, Interesting research question. Why don't you go solve that problem? Then they they run off and they do whatever it is they do. And then we come back and, and we kick it around. And if we can come up with some really good ideas, then we take it out to our industry partners and say, we tried this. You might want to try it. Like we're actually doing research on ourselves. So we're a living lab. It also allows me to retain people. So I would say that if you adopted that 20% rule of professional development, that is worth a lot in attracting and keeping people because most organizations won't do it. And it is highly worth it, both in terms of emotional health and in terms of productivity. We had no lost productivity whatsoever. So Ginger, I love the 3M example and the 20% rule. I definitely follow 3M. We're coming to a close and I wanted to ask you one last question. You mentioned global partnerships earlier. What are some of the benefits of the research aspect that your college has helped your students to be well-prepared in the innovation space? If we decided to partner with Unilever and put our students on task to take a look at what that that works like if people are building their own purpose and mission in, in various, the students get the work experience. So we call it work integrated learning. It's a practical application. The theory is, geez, if you allow people to choose, their engagement is going to be higher. Well, let's test it, right? So if you're now choosing to participate in that kind of activity, what's your level of engagement? So that's a huge reason to do research is is that you can actually test some of these ideas. And we use our students to actually help us deliver the tests. So they're getting practical, hands-on experience. It's not just theory. They're getting practice on what does it mean to create and craft a mission statement that has purpose that matters to your entire organization. We pull some of our students in to help with that kind of work and they go, wow, that's really hard. They go, yeah. And you thought you, we'd just you know, throw purpose and it appeared out of like a Cracker Jack box. So how would you go about getting it? And the, the joy of working with students is you've got five generations in the workforce. You have no idea how smart young people are because they have no experience to tell them that they're wandering into a landmine. They don't know how hard something is. So they go, oh, well, we'll take it on. We'll try. And it's in that trying. So I keep on telling them there's no mistakes. There's only research. So you try something. Oh, it didn't work. Hmm. Why not? Please don't repeat that again. You know, kind of thing. Like, why would you want to keep on doing the same thing if it didn't work? So what did you learn from the failure? You can't have innovation without failure. 
you can't be world-class without doing the, the hardcore work. You would never think in terms of, geez, I think I'll enter the Olympics as a skier without spending 10 years of training as an Olympic skier. So innovation is the same thing. It takes time. It takes a particular mindset. People can't be afraid to make a mistake. One of the things we did with the leadership, and this is another thing you could get maybe or test out, is I had our entire leadership internally to Humber, granted, do a failure podcast. What was the worst mistake you ever made that didn't turn out well? Horrible mistake. Maybe you got fired. Who knows? Tell me that. Because that then showed, and we gave it to all the faculty and all the students. So they could say, geez, that person is the vice president of whatever. And they did what? Oh, wow. I wouldn't even be that dumb that what that person did. But they lived through it and now see how smart they are. So people don't get that smart by not making mistakes. It's walking the talk of actually, if you're going to build that culture that cultivates. So when we say our watchwords are lead, transform, and differentiate, what does that mean? It means doing something differently. So you can't copy other people. You've got to do something different. Is that terrifying? Yep. But there's a whole bunch of us that are all terrified at the same time. So we'll hang out together and see what happens. And if it doesn't work, we'll move on to the next thing and learn from it. That's a big thing that people can talk about your failures. Do a failure resume. Tell me about all the grants you didn't get, all the jobs you applied for that nobody even called you. you know, how many are those? Because that then, uh, I think, puts in a dose of reality to the students and to you know our entire organization that innovation is something you work at every day. And some of it will be very small improvements. But if you aren't making those small improvements, you can't get to the game-changing ones. It has to be both, a combination of little incremental stuff and then the moonshots. And how do you protect the organization while you're going through each of those different aspects? It's a lot of fun. Nobody's bored here. That I can guarantee. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Well, Ginger, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time and sharing your experiences with, with us. Thank you. And good luck. Have fun with this. Oh, thank you again. Thanks, Ginger. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Innovative Executive with Bella Rushi, founder of Symmetry Consulting, a firm that specializes in helping companies embed innovation into their company. If you liked this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, make sure to check out Bella's book, The Innovative Executive, leading intelligently in the age of disruption. Join us for the next episode to further unlock your innovation potential. 